This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Bankhead Theater, and thank you for coming for the third of four of the Science on Saturday presentations. With the help of the local educators, Lawrence Livermore Lab, National Laboratory produces Science on Saturday for your continuing science education. So a big thank you to the lab and for all the people that helped produce this. Today our topic is Medical Radar, Next Generation Life-Saving Medical Diagnostic Services. All right, anybody here remember the original Star Trek series? Cool. Remember when, when uh, Dr. McCoy would wave that little thing over everybody and say, oh, Jim, we got to go, it's, you know, he's hurt. Well, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And by the way, that little sensor that I used to wave around was nothing more than a salt shaker from the caterer's truck. In this presentation, Dr. John Chang from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Dean Reese, a physics and biology teacher from Tracy High School, and Christine Paulson, an engineer also from the Livermore Lab, will take the salt shaker idea and introduce efforts to build medical tools to reveal life-endangering traumatic injuries to the head and torso by using the MicroPower Ultra-Wide Impulse Radar. Dr. Chang is a scientist at the Engineering Directorate at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and his research interests are in area of electromagnetic theories, techniques, and is investigating non-invasive wireless technologies for medical applications. He is, practice, he is also a practicing EMT and unit leader with the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office and Bay Area Mountain Rescue Unit, so I'm sure he sees the real-life applications of his work. Dean Reese has a BA in physics and a, with a double major in astronomy from the University of Massachusetts. And upon complete, completion of his undergraduate degree, he decided to try his hand at teaching, and we're really glad that he did. Prior to becoming a teacher, Dean served our country as a soldier in the National Guard. Christine Paulson has received three awards for development of portable, non-invasive pneumothorax detectors, cargo container security systems, and landmine detection systems. She is currently pursuing studies in systems design at MIT. So please welcome John, Dean, and Christine. Thank you. All right, good morning, everybody. So uh, definitely I want to welcome Dean and Christine uh, on stage with me. Uh, we're super excited to be here uh, and spend the next hour with you. Uh, we have hopefully some really interesting and exciting things uh, to show you uh, for the hour. And uh, welcome your uh, participation too. Okay, so uh, one thing I want to uh, say is that... Um, it's Saturday morning, and to get you out here on Saturday morning, it's just fantastic to see so many people here. And uh, medical radar, wow, it's a big word. Well, we're going to spend a lot of, I hope you have your pens and pencils out and paper, because we're going to go through a lot of stuff. And a lot of stuff is uh, including how do we create life-saving uh, devices uh, using a technology, what we call like a, a, a mouthful, micro-power, ultra-wideband impulse radar. Short for MIR. MIR, John MIR, do you, how many of you know who John MIR is? Raise your hand. John MIR. How many have you been to Yosemite? Right. John MIR is 
the father of Yosemite. He is the person that goes and discovers um, all these uh, great places in, in California and many, many other places around the country. So, so this is a tribute. And uh, you'll see a little bit why I like uh, John Muir so much. So one of the things that, that we're going to be going through today is uh, uh, a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of technologies, a whole bunch of physics uh, that, that hopefully will get you really excited. We're going to go through so many uh, 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 mathematical equations, so many theories. Uh, I hope you have your pens and pencils out. It's great. You know, Saturday morning, yeah, that's my favorite. You know. Oh, sorry, I was falling asleep. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> so before we go into all those equations, let's uh, do a little, go on a little adventure. Because on Saturday morning, honestly, I, I like to be outside. I w- spend all week working in, uh, in the lab. It's really cool. You see all this stuff. And, uh, but, you know, Saturday, I, got some, you know, I like to get some fresh air. And this is, um, this is a... Uh, a a uh, a wonderful long weekend coming ahead, and uh, and I like to go out. So our adventure takes us first from where we live. We live in one of the most beautiful places on earth. I have to say, um, the scenes, sceneries are fantastic. Um, we have um, you know hard to see here, but double rainbows. How many of you have seen double rainbows before? A rainbow, what is a rainbow? They're colors, right? And they're colors of the spectrum. And you see a little bit, is it's reflective of the electromagnetic spectrum. And we'll go to that a little bit later. Now, in our adventures, we can certainly experience what spectrums are. We can experience with our friends, these, all these, you know, share with them all these wonderful places of discovery. But some of us, some of us science-minded are interested in, you know, how does it work? Why does it work like that? And why are we sensing through our eyes, through our, 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 our skins, the temperatures, the environment? Many of the places that we like to go, in spite of that, we, the fact that we live in such a beautiful place in the Bay Area in California, is we like to go and check out what else is on the other side, the other side of the world, the other side of, uh, you know, Anywhere, you know, just spin the globe and stick your finger and let's go check it out. We are so lucky right now to live in a world where we could hop on a plane and hours later could really go to the North Pole if we want or go to the South Pole if we want. It doesn't take much, hours, right? But sometimes we also take that for granted because if you decide to walk somewhere by feet, it's going to take you days just to go a few hours, a few miles, to, to, to remote places, places that is very seldom populated, and kind of, but it's very cool, very, very cool. The places we go to, the other side of the world, could be very populated, the ancient cities of South America, or the really, really kind of far-off places in South Africa. And many of these places are far away, unfortunately don't have the type of medical uh, capabilities that we have here in the Bay Area. You know, we could go to Stanford and get the best medical treatment anywhere in the world. You go to South Africa in a remote jungle place, it's very, very difficult to get the type of health care you want. 
So when we go there, once we get off the plane, awesome, it's great. And we walk on the tarmac, you could end up being, after the plane leaves, the only person around in hundreds of miles. And in those places, as we go there, we're getting there by helicopters and check out these awesome glaciers and look at all these uh, sceneries that few people have actually experienced. There's one thing to see it on a screen in a picture. It's a whole different thing to actually smell it, to touch it, to when you land, actually go on it and, you know, and kind of see what it feels like. These are the places that are just so cool in my mind. You know, it's, it's almost as cool as having an um, In-N-Out burger, but it, it's pretty, pretty neat. And when we get to go there with our friends and share with our friends these, these awesome experiences and soak it all in and have lunch, and you could decide whether or not you want to, oh, let's go climb that mountain and go to the top of the world, or just kick back up in Greenland, for example, and watch some of the world's largest icebergs that are ever out there, it's like life could not be better. You are so happy, you're just excited, you're kicking back, you know, and, and just having a good old lunch. But you are very isolated, too. And when you're isolated, you know, it's like, what could happen? You know, it's Calif- like California. We get no weather. It's always sunny. It's, it's, it's just beautiful. It's perfect every day. But as we all know, weather come. Bad things do happen. And, and um, before you know it, something that is super spectacular and quite beautiful could start to turn on you. You could be very prepared you could be uh, world-class in survival. But you're going to still be in a very, very far place. And when the weather is starting to come, and you're starting to kind of go, hmm, what happens if? And very dramatically, something does happen. Oh. Right? This is awesome, Right? It's both awesome and scary, right? It surprises you. It doesn't, you know, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to (laughs) die. Hopefully you don't. And that's what we want to do here is to keep you from dying. Because if you are unlucky and you get hurt by animals, by falling rock and ice, by um, the hurricane, by the meteor showers, by uh, earthquakes. You could be as prepared as you want, but you're going to still be kind of in trouble. And so what we want to do is, hopefully, maybe you have a cell phone and you dial 911, help! If you're very lucky and you get a, someone that says, what do you want? <laughs> you could get help to come and take care of you. The help that comes to take care of you would be very similar to you in the sense that if you're very far away, you get a chance to uh, be very prepared. The people coming to help you are very prepared. But in addition to taking care of themselves, they need to take care of you. 
So they have to take lots of equipment, medical equipment, ways to get you out of here. It takes a long time to be able to do that. And lots of people, as you could tell. One of the things that you could help them and they need help on is when you're hurt, how do you know how bad you're hurt? Is it an owie and a boo-boo that, that, that you're very sad about? Or is it something that within hours you might die? And so what we want to do with this is to be able to save, keep, save you and keep all the rescuers that are out there safe in trying to save you is to be able to tell them what is your injury? What is the sign of your injury in terms of are you in a life-threatening uh, uh, circumstance? Or if we don't do something right now, you will die? Or is it something that, I have an owie. Okay, well, you know, sit back, have some water, and we'll get to you, before, you know, after the blizzard goes away. So the mirror technology is this technology that we have developed, which allows us to be able to uh, help, with the, help the rescuers do lots of really interesting things. And some of the interesting things are tracking moving people. And what you see on the left is uh, a floor plan of a building. And you see the walls in the outlines. And you see little bright spots. Those bright spots are these things that are indicating things that are moving. In this case, the people are actually moving. So in search and rescue, it's great. If you're lucky, it's not, never that great, right? Because somebody's hurt. But it's great when you have one subject. Everybody could go and help that one subject. Devote all the energy and resources. But what happens if you have lots and lots of uh, uh, people that are, that are stuck? And first of all, where would you know where that subject is? So this is the technology that allows you to go and determine where uh, a, a person would be. Now, once you find that person, that person might be very hard to get to because they're in a collapsed structure, a, a uh, building after earthquake that just, like, you can't get there because even trying to get there, you might cause more things to collapse. So you want to be able to locate that person, but then go into that mode of monitoring. Are you doing well or not? And that's, we transition from using this technology of finding someone to the rescue of, in the, in the context of being able to monitor your state of health. How are you doing? How do we monitor the state of health? We look for breathing, how well you're breathing, and we look for how well uh, your, your heart rate is. So as you all know, when you're very excited, your heart rate goes higher, and when you're very calm, it gets lower. When you're ill, your heart rate behaves a certain way, and when you're healthy, your heart rate behaves another. So we are able to be able to monitor the state of health. And we can do that, in fact, through buildings and build, through structures and through, through materials. And we do that by using electromagnetic signals. The electromagnetic signals are these fields and waves that interact. That's, it's a physical phenomenon. It's light. It's visible. Or not, it's radio. It could be that it's the same energy that allows you to, um, uh, to see the color of the rainbow, as well as the same energy that allows you to, uh, to, to talk on your cell phone and text your friends. 
where we're using this is using this type of uh, energy in the microwave realm to be able to look at what's out there in space. And when I shine it to the audience, that signal, when I transmit it and bounce back, I could interpret that, what's bounced back, to be certain uh, characteristics of what's out there in space. And we're using that to determine the state of health of you, how well you're doing, or how ill you are. So the waves, what is a wave? A wave is something, if, if I stand here and I have one hertz, that means that in one, uh, over one second, there is one cycle, right? I would go up to the top and then go down to the bottom, just like the ocean waves. That is a wave. The wavelength is the distance, physical distance, of if I stand there and then if I, the wave is moving, that is a distance of a wavelength. The type of waves that we're looking into are the microwaves. These are the waves that are about this long in terms of how, how far they are. It's the same type of microwave. These are the energy that we use to cook uh, your popcorn and that you put, in your, uh, put into your microwave oven. But we're using it at such a lower energy level such that we're able to just uh, interact with this, what's out there without uh, injuring what's out there, without cooking what's out there, right? So if you're willing to talk on your cell phone for days on end, you're, you know, it's, it's, this is way safer than that. So that's, what, that's where we're going with this. So next, please. So now that we have this kind of concept of what a wave is and the microwave we're using, what we want to do is we want to show you what we do with it. What we do with it is we make it into a radar. We take this electromagnetic sensor, send out these microwave signals, look at the space, and look at what bounces back. What bounces back, that signal is, allows us to tell you what's going on. Is there something there? Is it moving? If it's moving, what's it doing? So here, uh, well, uh, Christine Paulson, will, will, my good friend and fellow engineer, will show you uh, a, de- a demonstration of how it works. Good thing. Thanks, John. So let me see a show of hands. Who's ever stood at the edge of a canyon and shouted out, hello? Okay, what happens? It echoes. That's exactly right. So just like those audio signals that are echoing in a canyon, we use radar with electromagnetic signals. And those signals echo off of objects in the room or people or anything that's in front of our radar. And we are able to collect those echo signals that come, that reflect back and figure out information about what's in the, what's in the room or what's in front of the radar signal. So that's how it works. So I'm going to show you a radar. Actually, this is, this is one right here. Uh, this radar is sending out pulses into the space in, in, right in front of me. And on the screen, you're seeing on the x-axis, on, on the bottom, you're seeing time as the signals are scrolling by. But there's nothing in front of the radar right now. So we're not seeing much. On the y-axis, um, the vertical part, that's showing how far away from the radar is it seeing something. So the range, it's going to look you know, from right here down at the bottom to uh, across the room. So in order to demonstrate this, I'm going to ask uh, 
Dean to come approach me, and you'll see him. Okay, there he is. Everybody see that? Okay, now back away. All right, let's give Dean a round of applause. Okay, great. Great job, Dean. Okay. Anybody got any other suggestions for what we like Dean to do? How about can you uh, can you run out? Let's can you come fast? Okay, no, run backwards. All right. Okay. How about a small movement? Uh, okay. So so he's waving his hand back and forth. We can see that's a smaller movement, right? Okay. And I can even point. I can even see where he is. So if you back up, Dean. All right. Okay. I can measure just by where that line trails off, I can tell where he's located. So we use this radar to measure the distance. How far away is Dean? And when he's moving, how much is he moving? And so you're going to see some different applications of this radar today, how we use motion and um, detection in medical applications. Thanks, Christine and Dean. So one of the really exciting things about what we're doing here is uh, next is that we, in fact, over the past 12 years, before many of you were born, um, take the technology that used to be just in the laboratory, as shown in the picture. There are lots of big racks that requires plugging into the wall, and reduce that down to something that is very tiny very small, handheld. And it allows us to take advantage of electromagnetic signals. And it sends out the pulse and determines what the reflection is through the echo so that we could use for detecting what's out there. We could localize and tell you how far it is out there. And we can monitor what it's doing. And so one of the really nice things for medical applications is that it doesn't harm you. It is very low power. And as I mentioned, if you're willing to text and talk on the phone for days at a time, um, this uh, isn't going to do anything to you, and which is a very nice thing, especially we don't want to introduce any harm by even the act of treating you. The other thing is that it's non-invasive. There's some great medical devices out there that, that is, is there to help you and treat you, but they're invasive in the sense that they have to be placed into you. They have to cut you open and stick it in you. That's kind of, I don't want that. So, so I like this because I don't have to stick that in me. I could just look from afar and get a sense of how am I doing. Now, the other thing that's, uh, that's really nice is it doesn't require skin contact. For us who are operating in blizzards, in very harsh and difficult environments, and we are afraid to uh, die from being cold, we don't want people to start to take our clothes apart to put monitors on us. So to have this device to be able to monitor and measure our state of health is very, very uh, desirable and very nice to have. So the other thing is, as someone that's going to go way off, days away into the cold and uh, difficult environments, this device is very portable. It could be handheld, and so it's battery operated. I don't need a plug, and if it's, the battery could last for a long time, 
And what we want to do is we also want to have lots of people use it. And so all these things, uh, these things are very, very desirable for us to be able to bring to difficult environment, out of the hospital environment, to determine whether or not you're going to live or die. Okay. Now, the thing that we don't sacrifice is the sensitivity in putting everything into such a small package. And that's a very, very advantage, a great advantage for uh, the doctors and the paramedics and the physicians. So, but how does it work? You know, where in the real life environment can we see uh, this being used? So, uh, how many of you have seen the, um, the asteroid kind of falling out of the sky? over the yesterday, the day before. Raise your hand. Great. Kind of scary, right? What happens if it happens, uh, you know, what's going to happen if it happens right now to us? Well, you know, the likelihood is, you know, eh, not too much. Once every 100 years. But we do live in California, and we're afraid of earthquakes, right? What happens if an earthquake comes? So what I want you guys to do is to stomp your feet and stomp it really hard. Louder? Louder? That's a 3.2. That's tiny. Louder? Come on, come on, come on. Okay, okay, okay. All right. So that's uh, maybe a 4. All right. 4.0. But it's right down here. And the building collapsed. The door shuts. And then if I'm the rescuer and I'm outside, I need to know how to get to you. I need to know where I should look. I need to know how bad you're hurt versus how bad you're hurt. All right? So this is a demonstration video, a few minutes, and of uh, showing you how this actually could work. This system consists of an ultra-wideband radar unit made at our laboratory. It's a USB interface to a standard laptop PC designed to look through collapsed structures and rubble and search for victims. This is the display, if you look on the laptop here, of what you see coming out of the radar. On the bottom here, the x-axis is time. Signals travel this way across the screen as time passes. The y-axis here shows distance, in terms of distance from the radar. So if I move in and out relative to the radar, you'll see a white signal moving in and out on the y-axis in scrolling across the screen in the x-axis in time. If I stand at one location and just wave my hand, you'll see a stationary white signal at that distance from the radar. So let's go out to the rubble pile and see how this works in a real scenario. The system is designed to be lightweight and easily backpackable, so a responder or a medical person could quickly just put it into a backpack and carry it out to the location. Now we're heading out to a test rubble pile that we'll demonstrate the system on. Now in this example, the responder will drop into an exposed cavity on the rubble pile. As you can see here, it is not easily further accessible into the rubble pile, so the first responder can set up the radar and look through these walls to see if there's any trapped victims on the other side. 
The system can be quickly deployed by simply setting the radar near a wall or against a wall, and then the laptop opened up. Now, if we look at the laptop screen, we can see any signals that are there. Is there any way there? There's motion. There you can see motion about five feet away from the radar. Move if you can hear this. Now you can clearly see that there appears to be a hand waving or some sort of high speed motion on the other side of that wall about five feet away. Let's back up and see what's on the other side. If we look around the chamber, the first responders in, we'll kind of see what the rubble pile consists of. The radar is behind this wall and looking through this way, this thick wall, Rebar reinforced. There's an air gap here. And if we remember, the victim was about five feet away. So it must be in this other chamber behind yet another concrete wall. Let's see if someone's in there. And there's our trial victim. Take the search and rescue radar to another test location. Follow the first responder as he walks over to another deployment site for the radar. This site is an example of a freeway collapse structure. Here, two bridge decks have fallen on top of each other, crushing a car in between, and there may be victims trapped underneath. The first responder, in this example, only has access to the top deck, so we can set up the radar up there and attempt to see any motion on the lower decks. Can you move? We'll set up the camera to look at the screen. If there's anybody down there, move! Make now, if you look, you can see periodic motion about seven feet away from the radar okay, on the screen, keep it up. represented by those more. white lines, traces shifting in and out. So we can say that there's probably a person trapped about seven feet under that top deck. Let's zoom out and see what's there. Okay, come on out. And there's our trapped victim underneath the two bridge decks and the car. So what you saw right there is an example of when the disaster strikes and how search and rescuers will go out and try to help people. And as you can tell, there are two people lost. The idea of this uh, video is that we could go through a big area that is very, very um, uh, kind of hazardous and methodically see where people are and search this is a search portion, find them. Once we find them, what you saw in the video is like, yeah, people are waving and we could take the camera and, and, and find and just say, hey, come out. But in many of these places in disaster areas, you can't get to these people. And the areas that collapse structure is so dangerous that it would take hours and hours, 12 hours just to get to the other side of that five foot distance of all the concrete structure.
to be able to access and try to reach this, these people. So we want to have ways to be able to see if we could remotely determine their state of health. How well are they breathing? How well is their heart rate going? So this is a technique that, that we would be uh, uh, utilizing this technology for. One of the things that we did as an example is a use of this radar in this little flashlight way. This looks like a flashlight. It kind of acts like a flashlight, but it's not a flashlight. It's what we use to integrate this radar into a package that could carry. And just like a flashlight, you shine somewhere and you get to see what's there, we actually get to see and sense what's on the other side of a wall. So we had a chance to take this device, in fact, 12 years ago to the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center disaster was horrible. It was a horrible disaster. But we were able to provide some help in taking this device, fly over across the country two days after the event, and work with the firefighters and the police officers and to uh, take this and join them onto the collapsed environments and do it as safe as we can but it's a very dangerous environment. And we, what we did was we would go through these big voids, big holes in the ground, and crawl through them, and then use this device like a flashlight. Put it up against what we know there might be other areas, caverns, spaces on the other side, and see if there's any motion. I would say, hello, anybody there? And see if there's any motion that comes back so that I could say, Nobody's there that I could detect, or let's get some people here to help excavate and get people out. And unfortunately, that was such a tragic disaster um, that nobody was found because no live person um, lived beyond the first day. So one of the things then, if we were to have located someone alive and they are trapped, what can we do? The thing that we want to do is monitor their state of health. What is their state of health? Their vital signs? How are they breathing? And what is their respiration, uh, cardiac? What is their heart doing? And we can watch them as we continue to very carefully peel back all the layers of the debris and the collapsed environment to see whether or not uh, and do it and give them the best chance to live. So here is one of the uh, images of what those type of signal looks like. It's very complex. I'm not going to go into it. It's very colorful. All I want to show you is that these type of images have the type of resolution sensitivities to give us the, and determine in the lower colorful graph many types of rhythms. The rhythms of the heart as it's beating and the rhythm of your respiration in the bigger cycles. What we're gonna do right now is to give you a demonstration of respiration and what that looks like. So, Christine? Thanks, John. So, what we're gonna demonstrate here, I want you guys to use your imaginations a little bit. So, Peter is sitting here, but let's imagine that he's a collapsed, he's in a collapsed structure, okay? He's, he's, he might be unconscious, we don't really know, he's, not showing up. We can't really see him. Imagine there's a wall here. And um, I'm, I'm going to try to use this radar to see through the wall 
and see, let's say we know he's there, but I want to monitor his state of health. So I'm going to use a radar that looks like this. It's pretty small. Um, this probably wouldn't be the final packaging that a real responder would have if this were a commercial product, but this, this is just to demonstrate how this would work. Um, so what you see on the screen here, I want you to look at the top graph. In the top graph, there's a yellow signal there. Okay, the signal is telling us a couple different things. The first thing it's telling us is Peter's position. If I look at that little bump that's going up and down by looking at the x-axis, I can tell how far away he is. It looks like he's about 1.7 meters away from the uh, radar. Now the next thing I look at is, see the signal how it's going up and down? That's actually his chest moving up and down as he breathes. So that motion, we're able to see it and we can track it. And that's what the trace on the bottom is. So as you can see, his, he looks like he's pretty doing okay, right? Pretty healthy? What do we think? He's, he's alive at least. Uh-oh. Uh, uh hmm. Something's going wrong here. Oh no, Peter, are you okay? Oh, he came back to life. Okay. <laughs> so you get a feeling for how this might work. <laughs> All right, John. Okay. Thank you, Christine. Mm-hmm. And so that's respiration. Another one that's actually really interesting that you might want to see, well, I'll show you, is what happens a, a view of my heart as it's beating. Another, we make many of these type of devices, some big and some little. And this is one of the little ones. It looks like a little stethoscope. You bring it up against your chest, and you can see me. So the way that the figure is going is on the left side of the screen is the the surface of this little stethoscope. And the more you go to the farther right, the deeper it is sensing. So right at the surface, right underneath my sternum, you can see, I think, the, re- uh, the rate of my heart going. It's a little fast. I'm not sure if it's because my heart's two sizes too small, like a Grinch, or three sizes too big. But it is beating very fast, right? And cause I, I, I don't want to mess up here. I want to impress you guys. And so I'm a little nervous. So... But that's what we do. We use these type of signals, and you can tell it's going through my clothing into my body to be able to actually detect the movement of my heart going back and forth. So these are the type of the range of sensitivities that we are able to see. So these type of signals are signals that are give us indications of, um, of uh, vital signs. Vital signs, again, is how well you're breathing and how well your heart's doing. But when we go and get injured, there are a couple of things us that are in the emergency medicine world are particularly worried about. Those are the traumas, the injuries to specifically what we call kill zones. The kill zones are your head and your torso. Why are these kill zones? Because these are the places where we have our vital organs, our brains, and our heart, and our lungs. If we have damage there, it's very easy and very quickly how you might die. 
So we wanted to develop these devices so that we can monitor and anticipate. One of the hardest things about determining injuries is it's really hard to look into the body. You know, yes, we have MRIs and CT scans, but those are, you know, in hospitals. I have to get you from the South Pole to the hospital. And I have to do that quick enough so you don't die while you're in transit. These are devices that allow us to determine what uh, kind of injuries they are. And, and so the one on the left, for example, is whether you get hit on the head by a um, baseball, fall off your bicycle, get hit by a truck, fall off a cliff. Your brain is, is a big box, right? And the box is not going to go anywhere. It's very rigid. That's a box that doesn't go anywhere. And within your brain is these little soft, gooey things. And the soft, gooey things are what keeps you alive, what keeps you thinking, what keeps you saying, ow, that hurt, or what doesn't keep you. One of the injuries that's really dangerous and really hard to find without a, uh, a CAT scan or an MRI in the hospital are injuries where the blood vessels, the red portion within your brain, the blood that is feeding your brain tissue to keep you alive, when that ruptures. Because you hit it, it busts, and it doesn't give you any more ways of nourishing your brain cells. What's worse, your heart is still pumping, and you're pumping really lots of blood. Well, the blood's got to go somewhere, so it's being pumped into your skull, your cranium, and it continues to grow. Well, there's only so much space in this area, right? So as it grows, it becomes starting to press up against the rest of your brain. And in the worst case, that right before you die, it goes through your eyeballs and goes through the holes of your, of your skull. And that's really sad, right? And so what we, but what we could do is... If, the only way to detect whether or not you have that kind of bleeding in the brain is, again, going to the hospital. Or what we're trying to do is develop it so that we could determine it while you're still in a very cool, rural, distant uh, village or on top of a mountain. And then we could say, is this person urgent? Do we need to risk rescuers that are flying from you know, hundreds of miles away in a blizzard to save you, risking their own lives? Or can we say, hey, you're pretty cool. Wait till the weather gets a little better before you come. Right? So those are the things that we as rescuers try to do. Now, the so what? Well, even if we determine that there's bleeding, whoop de do. The treatment is actually very cool. If you're a neurosurgeon, if you're a doctor, you fly in to the hospital or you just go and go to um, have a doctor where you are. And he takes a little drill bit, you guys seen the drill bit, and just drill through your skull. And then that decompresses and allows the blood to go somewhere else and preserve um, your life. The second one that is very similar is the pneumothorax, a trauma, a, a trauma to your chest wall in which the trauma causes a leak from your lung into that space between your chest wall and the lung. And when it does that, it has a habit of causing uh, 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 the air 
to be um, going one way. So every time you breathe, it presses more air into that space and not into your lungs. And so you end up, just by the virtue of breathing, suffocating yourself and collapsing your lung. Now, it's also very hard to determine that if you don't have an x-ray. And x-rays don't exist on the mountaintops. So what we want to do is, you know, been working on this device of bringing it so that it's portable and bringing it to the mountaintops. Because if you know that you have a pneumothorax, the treatment for the paramedics is very, very simple. You take a big needle, and don't do this at home or to your friends. Take a big needle, find a space between your ribs, and just go pop. When you go pop, what you hear is there's so much pressure like a balloon, you hear this thing go and you decompress the pneumothorax. And you could save that person immediately. Right? But none of these procedures, even though the treatment is very simple, and again, don't do this at home, or to your pets, you know, it's also very dangerous because you're introducing, you're hurting someone to save someone. Okay? So, so these are the things that what we want to do is bring, um, bring this technology to, to the uh, EMTs, to the paramedics, so that we could allow them to better take care of yourself. So what we cover today is um, using this particular technology to bring a new and exciting life-saving tools to the field, to places that are very, very hard to reach, to allow the doctors and the EMTs to locate the victim, to be able to triage and sort out the level of the criticalness of the injuries. And once we could know that that's the person we want to um, help, we want to be able to monitor how are they doing. Are they getting worse or are they getting better? And we're doing all of this because these type of technologies is very sensitive to these, our body. They're very small size. They're very low power, so he's used it for a long time. And they're not harmful to you. So, as you can tell, we have shown you uh, just a sampling of uh, what we've done to date. Um, it's very exciting. We have so much that's really, I think it's kind of fun. I hope you think so too, but we have so much to go. We can make it even better. We can make it smaller. We can make it even last longer. We could uh, make it even cheaper and do all sorts of other things that I haven't thought of or none of us have thought of yet that we're waiting for you to be creative and come up with a problem to solve. So, so we need your help. So do your work and deter, you know, get your grades up and uh, come and work with us. And uh, you get to uh, go to the far ends of the world and, uh, or go to the hospital and work with all sorts of interesting things. Um, so some of the takeaway points today that we cover is the concept of electromagnetic spectrum. And I just touched the tip of the iceberg. Very tip. There's so much, and it's really, really exciting. And uh, what wavelengths and how it relates, you know, the size, the dimensions, what it does for us, and how do we use this physical and harness the physical phenomena 
and make a technology, build devices that we turn into radars and use that radar to determine the state of health, how well you're doing, so that we could better take care of you. And also, if there are many of you at the same time, how to say, give the most people the greatest chance of surviving. Okay. So the whole reason for doing that is because I like going out to the ends of the world. I like to uh, share these explorations and adventures with my friends and uh, s- smell the roses and check out you know, all these scary and dangerous and snakes and cliffs and ice. It's just wonderful. So, um, so we're going to take, uh, stay in your seats. Uh, we're going to take uh, a, about a handful of questions from, the, uh, from you. And, uh, and also um, uh, later on, after we finish, uh, again, stay in your seats. Uh, you could come up and uh, ask additional questions. But I do want to, uh, at this point, thank, um, thank uh, my, my friends and colleagues, fellow scientists. And... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.